Welcome to episode 13 of CTU Speaks Black Lives Matter at School. Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teacher. So welcome back. We haven't had a uh, episode in a little bit. I know. I miss being here with you, Jim. Oh, I, if only you were on an island somewhere where you could have relaxed. I know. Mm. <laughs> but we're going to get back into it, so happy New Year to everyone. Yeah. Jim and I are going to get back in a routine because I know that you missed this CTU podcast. I know. Everybody's been dying to hear from us. And if you have not, please subscribe and tell all those that you know to subscribe as well. You think anybody's left that hasn't subscribed? Maybe a few. Okay, a couple people? We need them. All right, we got to get them. All right, well, we got uh, two really good segments today. We got an interview with Jackson Potter and Gervais Clay. They're going to be talking about the uh, shutdown and turnarounds of schools here in the city of Chicago and the loss of African-American teachers in the classroom. And this is very important as we honor Dr. King this month on uh, anniversary of his 90, what would have been his 91st birthday and how he fought for civil rights. It's like we're still fighting um, for those civil rights, even in 2020. Exactly. Then after that, we've got a interview with a Seattle teacher, a guy named Jesse Hagopian, who founded or was one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter at School movement back a few years ago. He's going to tell us about what that's about and how we can get involved here in Chicago if, if that's what we want to do in our classrooms. Welcome to CTU Speaks, where we are joined with two prolific teachers today. Wow. Uh, we have Jackson Potter, history teacher from back at the yard, history. and with Gervais Clay, teacher on leave from Pullman Elementary, now CTU field rep, nice. helping the teachers. And so we're joined with him them today as we discuss school closing, school turnarounds, and just the mass exodus of black educators mm-hmm. in Chicago public schools. Uh, Chicago used to have quite a number of African-American educators in the system. And over the last 15 years, we seem to have lost more than half of them. And we want to talk about why that is and what effect that has on the city. So uh, the first question I've got for you guys, and this could be answered by either of you, um, that over 50% of teachers in CPS are white, while only around 9 or 10% of the students are. Why, why does that make a difference? And why is there this disparity? Shouldn't it just be that if I'm a good teacher in a classroom, that's all that matters? Yeah, so um, this is Jackson. And I'll start by sharing that when I started at Englewood High School as a rookie teacher, virtually all my colleagues in the department, the majority in the school itself were black veteran educators, many who grew up in Englewood, so had an intimate knowledge understanding of the students, their surroundings, their needs, their learning styles. And without that support, I would have been an abject failure, no doubt about it, as an educator. And when the school got closed, we lost many of those people. It was the second or third time they had been through a layoff, a reconstitution, and only schools in low-income communities of color were being targeted with low test scores. And the data they used to close the school was from the year in which a young man, Maurice, was murdered on school grounds. He was a star basketball player. And so I got a position because the black veteran educator who grew up in Englewood was promoted from the social studies department into a dean of security position, uh, Napoleon Montgomery, who was like a six foot seven older gentleman that had massive respect in the building. And so I was just like a rookie pitcher, you know, throwing grand slams every inning and didn't have good classroom management. But Napoleon took time out, taught me, showed me the ropes, other people in the department. And without that knowledge, understanding, cultural competence, you know, our schools would be much worse off. And I think we're heading in that direction. So when were you at Inglewood? Because we're not talking about the Inglewood STEM school. We're talking about the old Inglewood that was closed. Yeah, this was known as the castle back in the day, 63rd and normal. And I started in the 0203 school year. Okay. It's the same year I started. Nice. There you go. All right. Right. You started teaching in it? I did. I started teaching 02. Yeah, here in Chicago, up at King. Oh, okay. Yep. So, um, Gervais Clay, CPS is notorious for always having some undermining 
something. You know, like they want something and you, you never know what they want because I can remember as we sit here about um, Phillips. I started out teaching mm-hmm. at Wendell Phillips uh, High School and I remember that school going through the first set of turnaround and I never knew what turnaround was about as a, as a teacher. So I was like real nervous where we had to reapply for our job, get all dressed up, go through interview process. And I noticed that the the teachers that were coming back, that they were bringing back through the turnaround process were mostly the the white teachers. Were Mm -hmm. you able to come back? I was able to come back, but I remember, um, I think Barbara Sizemore was in the building and she was the one who was reminding them that you had to have black teachers come back into this building. But if CPS had had their way, they would have had what they wanted to have in Wendell Phillips during that, that time. And so that would have been like 1997, 98 that I was there. And so that was, you know, like when I look at, when I look at that, I look at how scary it was because that was probably the beginning of when we had to worry about the black educators being pushed out of the school. And I was young. I was just beginning to uh, begin my uh, career as a teacher, but I was brought back because somebody black stood up and said, you needed some black teachers back right. in this, in this building uh, with students, with the black children right. that was being, that was in that building. Right. And yeah. this gets into the whole history of racial segregation here in the city and how that's kind of permeated all different communities and the, the effects it still has today. There's a, an interesting quote from a Mother Jones article from a couple of years ago. I'm just going to read it here that uh, teaching was an essential path in the middle class, especially for African-American women. That's true. It was a nexus of organizing. During the civil rights movement, black educators were leaders in the fight, fighting for increased opportunity, including more equitable school funding and greater voice for communities in running schools and districts. And by silencing those black voices in those schools, you've silenced this voice in the city. So it's not just a problem for the schools. It's a problem for our city and the, the heart of our city as a whole. So black students needing black educators as role models is huge because I remember uh, being 20, going away to school for the first time at 18 and being kicked out of school and brought back to the school. Right. I mean, brought back home because I wasn't prepared to go away to college. But I remember uh, Larry Hawkins, who was my mentor over at the University of Chicago. And that was a role model. He was my I met him in high school as a sophomore uh, volleyball coach. And he spent so much time with us that everybody wanted to go to college. Like it was like, like if if college was embedded, just embedded, just go to college, just go to college. It was always right. around us. Like it became the new normal for for us. And it was a set of kids, and we were over at the University of Chicago on 60 of 60th and Ellis. And in this one little building. This this guy, Larry Hawkins, turned out so many black youth going to college that it was just huge. And so when I came back and it wasn't successful the first time, it was like, OK, so now you got to regroup again. You know, like you regroup. You don't just give up. You regroup. And I went through the process again. And this time I was more successful. So but while I was doing all of this, I was thinking that it was so many, so many black men and women teachers around me talking to me about how to be successful, showing me how to be successful, that I had no business being a failure, right? It was not even an option. Like you don't even know about it being an option. And before you know it, you're graduating. And we did that so many times with so many youth that it was just ridiculous. And that was just a small, a micro drop of what took place. And so I say that to say that each and every time you remove a black teacher from a classroom, from around a black students, where we know them, right. where we right. live with them, where we were them. Yes. It's a reason mm-hmm. why they need to have us. And it, you don't necessarily have to say it's about the academic part, but it's about that motivation, that motivational piece or that piece exactly. where, what you give to them. So in, 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 in ending this, and I probably can talk about this for a while, but in ending this, I, I remember taking 
kids to, you know, like driving the kids to college. Like parents don't know. And, and some of the parents didn't know that your kid is going off to college and what to do. So we spend a lot of time saying, hey, this is what to expect. This is what's going to happen. Right. You don't have to go down there thinking that you're going to solve the world or you're going to be an AB student. Just be yourself. Just take care of your business. And we, t- I took so many kids to school, you know, in my car that today's CPS will probably have me at the inspector general's <laughs> office talking about something you in right. trouble, right? But we took so many kids because that's what was taught to me. And so right. when you remove the me's out of the building, then that's what you remove out of your building. Exactly. The people who really care and know how to take a kid off to the college and get them prepared and stay with them until, the, until they graduate. And, and I didn't just witness that phenomenon of cultural competence and black educators helping black students succeed at Englewood, but it helped me succeed as a white educator. Oh, right. So yeah. the mentorship, the knowledge, the wisdom being shared Mm-hmm. You, that's indispensable. Oh, definitely is. At my school too, I was a brand new educator. As I just found out, Jackson and I started the same year. And I had never taught in a high school. And I was lucky enough to have an older African-American uh, teacher working with me. Uh, Muhammad Abdullah came and taught me all kinds of stuff that in my head, I'm like, that'll never work. And then I did it and I'm like, oh, damn, that worked. <laughs> You know, and it was, it was great. And without Muhammad, I would not, cause they're, you know, it's not like CPS has a mentoring program or anything to help mm-hmm. teachers. So that's what you get. You need yes, these experienced yeah. teachers in the building to let us know what we need to do and when we're doing it wrong. I agree. Gervais, you had mentioned that, uh, Phil's the turnaround. I was at a turnaround school and it was uh, really heartbreaking to be there mm-hmm. in a sense. It was like I was torn because I felt bad that people lost their jobs. And then I felt, you know, like I needed a job because the school was, I was at before <laughs> right. that McCorkle, it closed down because the, the, it was, the roof was leaking and they, and it was just cost too much to fix. And so it was the first time that I experienced like, wow, I got to fight for my job. Cause mm-hmm. I thought when, when yes. you became an educator, you're like, Oh, you, you never seen any unemployed teachers. Mm-hmm. And I never thought about unemployment when I started working. I thought that I'll always have a job. I would never have to really worry about a job, but then they closed the school before they did that, we went to the school closings and we so closing hearings and we were just given these this rationale about how our principal did her due diligence and she asked for this route to get fixed mm-hmm. and it just fell on deaf ears. And they said whatever, but they were building condos across the street. So mm-hmm. we kind of knew what that was all about. But it was the first time I felt like, wow, as an educator, as a citizen of this uh, community and of this city, my voice was not being heard. And this, the school still closed and they built mm-hmm. condominiums across the street. So I had to go to another school and it was turned around because again it was stated at the time I was kind of eager to turnarounds at the time but it was to say it was chronically the the jargon then was chronically low test scores mm-hmm. and these teachers are failing students that's when that jargon first came out and me just being totally unaware of what that meant I'm like okay well I'm going to make things better. But then this jargon started you know continuing and it was the rationale to close so many schools and I'm like these teachers are doing the best they can. They're not getting the resources they need. Um, these classes mm-hmm. are overcrowded. And right. I looked at things in a different way because I was just, again, I was kind of new. I was in the system a couple of years, uh, about five years before uh, I went to Curtis. And I just was unaware and just believed like, okay, these schools are chronically low. But they wasn't. They were low. But again, it wasn't because of the lack of competence of the teachers. It's because of the lack of resources they were given. Right. Um, in the classroom and in the school in general. And that's what led me to become a delegate. I'm like, I'm not taking this. We're not going to just continue to take this mess from CPS. Uh, We're doing the best that we can and we need the resources in order to move these students to the next level. And Mm -hmm. every time we did, it was always some new criteria that always pushed us low. When we were getting, (laughs) doing well on the ISAT, then you had NWEA. We had all these Mm -hmm. new um, different tests and assessments that always brought us to a different place. And so I can definitely understand that. So it it was hurtful as a black educator to see all these school closings. And even when Curtis had turned around, we was in danger of it turning around the next year, but we prevented that. But I just like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening. Before I went to Curtis, the principal at McCorkle where the school did close down because of the roof. She said, this was in 2008. She said, in 10 years, CPS is going to look totally different. There are going to be hardly any black teachers. They don't want any black teachers at CPS. Yep. And she was older. She was ready to retire. She was like 65. And I did not believe 
that she, I didn't believe her. She like they're trying to change this whole system and cleanse this system of African American teachers. I'm like, no, nah, I don't believe right. that. And so ten years later, yep. we I'm are, seeing yeah. no, what she's saying was yep. was true, and I, it's scary. I mean, I actually think their intention is more about African American students and mm -hmm. community and their families. And because there's historically mm -hmm. been such a bond and tie because of segregation mm -hmm. between black teachers and black students, we see the consequence of that policy. But yep. when we look at what preceded the greatest number of schools that have closed in American history in Chicago in 2013, it was the greatest closure of public yep. housing, housing in mm -hmm. US history yep. right. with the CHA plan for transformation. Right. And so when the Civic Committee of the Commercial Club of Chicago, the Boeings, the Walgreens, the Aon Insurance, McDonald's came together and said, we want to reshape the city schools in 04. Right. They wanted to close a bunch of schools and privatize them. It was the beginning of what we see Arnie Duncan having done, what we saw with Dallas, um, what we saw in New Orleans, what we saw in different cities across the country. And it's no accident that those same cities have also seen a decline in yeah. black residents mm -hmm. and black teachers. So it's a full frontal assault on low-income people of color as these cities gentrify, as Karen Lewis said, it's ethnic cleansing. I mean, that's how I met Gervais. We, we started going to these hearings and we, right. we started organizing yeah. together. Yeah. And yeah, and, and that is how I met Jackson. And and I want to say that, so one point that you made about, that I wanted to uh, say something about, Andrea, was the, the how do we ask students to walk by schools that have closed or their school that have right. closed and, and be okay with it? You right. know, like, and then... It's traumatizing. It's, it's so traumatizing right. because I've had adults who go up to schools that they have graduated from and say, oh, man, my school is gone. Yeah. Right. It's closed. So you don't have anything else um, to go back to. And the second thing is no one majored or, or decided to become a teacher to have to fight as hard as we're fighting right. to, be, to remain right. a teacher. That's correct. That is just crazy. You know, like who, who becomes a teacher to turn around and say, now I got to go fight. To be to stay a right. teacher, to, to educate the, the students the yeah, right I mean, way. No other position do you no have to other, do that. No, no other, other job. Profession. No yeah. other profession is right. asking you to do that. I think we fight. We're fighting the hardest. Very demeaning for everything. Yeah. Like it's like we have to fight the hardest for everything. You know, like it's like we have the the shoulders of the city of the kids of everybody on. You know, like well, we have the people on our shoulders. But yeah, I met Jackson, and I um, when I met Jackson, I was. A, uh, an assistant principal um, at one of the schools that was slated to close. Mm -hmm. And I, when we were slated to close and somebody said, you guys are closing. And I was like, why are we closing? Right. At some point in time, I, I think that, that moment, that instance, I forgot who I was for a second. You know, like <laughs> people had to generally remind me and Jackson will tell you, like I went into it like, I'm an assistant principal, but it doesn't mean that I can't come out here and fight for right, what's right. right. And I always believe that you should fight for what's right. You always got to be standing up for something. You know, your title should not determine who you're going to fight when you're going to fight. No, exactly. And so I jumped right in like it was OK. Like, how dare somebody going to be in here talking about close the school <laughs> with the things that right. you're saying that they have to close? Your test scores are bad. Um, your attendance is horrible. Right. Your kids have no... The school is not producing the grades the way that they're supposed to reproduce grades. So therefore, you need to close. You're right. one of the schools that have to close. Right. Then you have to turn around and spend hours fighting. We put on such a massive fight, and this is how I met Jackson. Like, I could not believe the fight that Guggenheim put on when they put on that fight because yeah. they were able to say, we're not going to take this. And we went and got everybody that we can get from the news people to alumni yeah, yes. to the community. Yeah, everybody was sitting here trying to save this one mm. build, this yeah. one building on this strip of about three schools. And we trying to say, no, our school deserved to be open because you guys were all wrong. Right. And I felt so I was like, oh, no, they're right. We need to stay open. And I was only one year. This is only my second year in the building. And we end up we end up. 
fighting. Um, the media caught wind of it. They were like, I can't believe right. with Jackson and Karen Lewis and and Michael Bronson and Jesse Sharkey. We were all out there. We were all out there fighting, you know, and Stacy and, you know, everybody that I know now fought hard. Like li- they literally, fought. They, they, <laughs> yeah, not only were we fighting hard, but like n- the only people who supported the school closing were paid protesters. Hey, yes. Oh like they, even they yes. were turned during the course of these hearings. Yes. Like people were like, this we, isn't like, right. Look, look, like, it's like, so, it's so true. We went to a hearing and turned those people around. Like, they were right. sitting there paid. Like, if you do this, if you stand up and, and give your testimony to say why the school should be closed, who yeah. would, pay, who would dare pay somebody to do that? You know, yeah, and, you know, crazy. from CPS yes. to do that. You know, like, that has got to be the craziest thing to do, right? Yeah. But then you go in there and be like, now, why are you saying that? You don't know anything about the school. You shouldn't say that. You know, right. you start calling people out. So then people start saying, oh, no, I'm not going up there. I'm, I'm not right. saying that. You know, right. like, I can't do it. But it was just, it was just such a fight. And that's when it, it, it just stuck with me to say, this is not right. Yeah. And I will never forget those hearings. Like those, I was so, I have never been so embarrassed in my life mm-hmm. to stand before my employee to, to listen to them tell me that your school or your job needs to end because you're not doing A, B, C, D right. in your right. building. Yet you have never been in the building. Right. You're going to let something else determine what should close. And then here the people are. It's like we were, we were standing there just like trying. People was pleading with them and they had already made most of the decisions to it close did. whatever schools that they was going right. to close. And, and at some point in time, I don't know what we said or what we did, but we got that. We, I'll never forget um, listening to the radio. They were like, everybody turn on to the radio station. And we was turning to the radio station and they made the announcement that Guggenheim was saved. And I was like, yes, like yeah. we, we like all on the phone That's awesome. and we talking about something. Yeah, we say, we say, we did it. We did it. We did it. Only to have mm. plan B put in effect. Yeah. And plan B is now we're going to send a closing administrator in your building because yeah. we're going to get the school. We're just going to shut you all up because you raised so much havoc in the city right. that you had too many people, too many members, too many citizens, too right. many voting people saying that we're going to stand by you. We all on the TV, all that Operation Push, calling on everybody, making all kinds of announcements. Now they're saying we're going to get you. So they waited till all of that went away and they came back in and did a massive attack on the school and still closed the school. Right. Yeah, that is horrible because I know I, w- I was a product of a middle school, John Hope. Oh, and yeah, they closed yeah. John Ho. I remember Jackson and I went to um, a, cl- a school closing hearing where they were trying to close Harper, Inglewood, yeah. and John Hope. And I was thinking, like, okay, they're going to save the school. And that school meant a whole lot to me because it was a middle school back when we had middle schools mm-hmm. um, in two, uh, 1992, 1994. And it was such a great school, and it meant so much to me. And the people that I went to school there with, I still keep in touch with. Mm-hmm. Many of them are successful. Um, it just it just really helped me academically and it, thinking about uh, my career, my future and just being competitive. It meant a lot to me. And so to bribe by that school and see the school and know that it is now a charter school really hurts me. And it hurts the fact that, like you said, you fight so hard and you have all these rational arguments to keep the school open and why they should keep the school open because it's not just a place where you educate people, but it is a beacon in the community where people go for many things. And it means a lot because my mother went there. My mm-hmm. uncles went there. Mm-hmm. Everybody in my family went to John Hope for middle school. Um, my nephews went there. So it was just very important um, to me. And so to see that close and like it's going to, the name is going to change. Like, wow, what, what does that mean for African-Americans in this right. city? What is this, what is this city saying or what is their concern for African-Americans in the city? What do they believe our role in this community or in this city city is because they feel like it doesn't matter. And so when we talk about, you know, black lives matter at school, that's important to me because it should, because even though Jackson stated that, you know, what CPS agenda is, is more so uh, about the black students and families. It's still what the school Mm -hmm. closes still affects black teachers because most black teachers teach in black communities. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of black teachers that teach in on the North side. It's just not. And that's just the the rationale. Very few black teachers teach anywhere, but in a black neighborhood on the South and West sides Uh, for whatever reason, this is what it is. And just, just like that all across the state, I think only like 4%, there are only like 4% of black educators in the state of Illinois. And that's very scary to me because I went to school and I got a master's in education and to feel like 
that's being diminished and that my prospects of um, teaching if my neighborhood school closed and there are few choices right. on the South side because so many schools are closed. I don't feel like I have a, a, a reasonable or high option or opportunity to go anywhere else, but in a place where there are black people to teach mm-hmm. because there's still racism right. and my opportunities of teaching are still limited. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's been a, there's been a, systematic defunding of the schools and communities here in Chicago. And a a few episodes ago, we had Eve Ewing on uh, talking about uh, her book, Ghost in the Schoolyard, and looking at if these schools are really failing, why are communities fighting for them? Shouldn't the parents in those communities be wanting to close the school too? But that's not the problem. The problem is the schools are failing. We're failing the system. Or the system, I should say, is failing failing us. us. Yeah, Uh that's what I meant to say. That's where I was. Thanks. Thanks for the correction. (laughs) And what we got is this whole cycle of underutilization because of low test scores. And those low test scores, as you mentioned, as soon as we meet one benchmark, they're going to change that benchmark Mm -hmm. so we can't meet that anymore. And then because we're not making that, then we're going to underfund the school. Then we're going to close it. And this is a problem we've got in the whole community. And as you said, as a center of a community, it's, it's a center of all communities, all schools. You can be in the suburbs. It's a center of the community. You go to the schools in the suburbs and, and all their parents went there. Their kids went there. It's the center of the community. It should be the center of the community. And we're taking that away. And when we take a look at what's happening here in Chicago, we've got to figure out what are we going to do about this loss of educators as a whole. The state as a whole is losing educators, black, white, everybody. And, and why are we losing these? The CPS claims they are hiring their, their, uh, what, what is their number? The talent office. I'm sorry. It's going to say the equity office, but the talent office claims they are hiring, uh, tons of minority teachers, tons of African-American teachers, tons of Latino teachers. They're trying to, but they're just, they're just not applying. What, why do you think that might be? I think we're missing a little part of the story here. It's really, in my view, poverty and institutional racism that have conspired to put us in this situation. So when I was at Englewood, Napoleon Montgomery, my predecessor, told me when he was a student in the 60s, prior to the end of restrictive covenants, when the black middle class still largely resided in Englewood and Bronzeville, there were a thousand students in the or three thousand students in the building when it was the castle. They had one security guard at the front door. Right. Three thousand prim- primarily black students. Right. By the time I'm at Englewood, there's six hundred students. There's sixteen security guards. There's two full time police officers. Wow. There's a camera yeah. system that circumnavigates the block. There's a metal detector. Well, what happened? Did the teachers fail the students? Did they suddenly in in that 30-year interval, stop caring? Right. Or was it, you know, the loss of the steel mills, the loss of, right. you know, Sunbeam Electronics and Zenith and International Harvester and all of the stockyards that supplied a black middle class with good-paying union jobs? Right. And, like, you saw that. Like, my students, half of them were wards of the state. I mean, literally, uh, there was, you know, endemic violence constantly, students being killed and shot at every day. Well, how does that shit happen? Right. You know, it's because the powers that be, the political elite decide we want to invest somewhere else. Right. Right. Uh, or we want to take our factory somewhere else to have more profit. And so unless we're getting together with our community partners, like Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, you know, G2 Brown helped lead, helped lead that resistance along right. with Gervais and myself. It was a coalition. Otherwise, we'd be New Orleans. Like it's bad, but it's not nearly as bad right. as what they wanted. Right. And so how do we get it back? Like, that's the question. We need mm-hmm. affordable housing. We need mm-hmm. to give every homeless student a free house where they and their families can stay. Mm-hmm. Like, we can do that if we yep. tax the 1%. We need a voluntary desegregation decree. Let's ask this so-called progressive school board to ensure <laughs> that it's not just white kids going to Whitney Young. Right. And we've seen that increasingly. Or not just white teachers teaching them. Right. And so like, those are a couple of pieces that I think we could do immediately. And let's do a free scholarship to Chicago state for every black and Latinx graduate of CPS. If they become a teacher, that'll solve the problem overnight. Mm -hmm. We got it. Let's just make them do it. Right. You know, and the other thing we've got is, you know, at the state level, they always argue that we need to increase the teachers in the pipeline to keep this uh, from falling short statewide. And I think one of the big things we got to look at is why are people not choosing the teaching profession? 
You've got for the first time ever, more than half of teachers don't recommend to their kids to be a teacher. And if you're coming, and that's true across, it has nothing, that's not a racial issue. That's just because we see the, what's going on in the profession and we don't want our kids subjected to the same crap we're subjected to every day. Nobody has to convince anybody a lawyer or an engineer or any of those kind of thing, architect. Why do we have to try to bribe people to do this? Because the, the system itself is hurting teachers intentionally. Part of it's to try to, to drive them out of the system so they can put these charters in. You know, at the same time, we closed, how many schools we closed through REN 10? About 100. Was it 100-ish? Yeah, about 100, yeah. And, we, and we've got 100 and some charter schools Correct. in the system. Like, it's, we didn't lose all those kids. We lost them to charters so the charter operators can make a profit. And now, now look what happened. Now we're unionizing them, and now what's happening? Oh, guess Very what? Guess what? Right. They're not opening any of this year. Oh, no. No way. Right I wonder there. why that is. Because once you treat teachers with respect, then we actually can do the job we're trained to do. But Jackson made on some really key points when he mm -hmm. talked about the community piece um, oh, yeah. and the money. Like, that's huge because I, I grew up on, um, from about seventh grade on 60th and Cottage Grove. Mm -hmm. And so they transformed that whole neighborhood. And I can remember hearing, um, and it was affordable housing. Like, it was called Woodline Gardens. Then it went to Grove. New management, grow part, paralyze. Mm -hmm. So they just took, you know, like took over a little bit. <laughs> right. But I remember hearing as a uh, young adult how the University of Chicago owned that land. And I was like, well, how could they own where we stay? This, you know, this is government housing, but they owned that land and it was just on loan. And I was like, no, that's not true. Today, if you go to 60th and Cottage Grove, where I once lived and spent and met most of my friends, it is now Jewels. Right. And they, tore down the rest of yes, the uh, neighborhood and they put up new housing they did. and new qualifications. And, but my house, uh, my uh, um, place where I grew up, played ball, took my first kiss, had my, probably my first boyfriend. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know that's wow. We're getting personal on CT Speaks tonight. <laughs> so, so just, to, I say that to say, just imagine, you know, closing your school. Yeah. And my school is now, A.O. Sexton is now, Fisk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I went to A.L. Sexton, met yeah. my first teacher, you know, like I love my teacher, Cynthia Humes. I don't remember a lot of teachers, but I remember <laughs> those great ones. Right. I'll never forget Cynthia Humes. And uh, I, so just imagine being kids, a kid, and knowing that your, your, your place where you grew up and met most of your friends is not there anymore. Right. The school where you met these same friends and went to school with fault, fault you know, went to their house. And kids. And, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, like kids. Yeah, so you know, kids. You know okay. it's not there. Not there. And so that's, right. those are kind of issues that, that I, I deal with. But in, in, in listening to Jackson's point, think about we watched, uh, we watched the highlights of Laquan McDonald right. on TV being shot and killed, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you a kid and you knew him or knew you were a kid and you could be subjected to something like that, so just imagine having that as, as part. Of, and what do you do? You, you, you say that some of the people who are responsible, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, you say some of the people who are responsible are really not responsible or only maybe one or two people could be responsible for that. And so what do you do? Then you close my school. Right. Then you, you have all this violence in my well, neighborhood. It's like, it's like Tupac said, right? They had a war on poverty. Uh, uh, now yes. it's a war on drugs so the well, police yes, can police bother can me. Bother me. You know? yeah. So that, that's what it is. Thank you guys so much for coming in. It was always great to talk to Jackson Potter and Gervais Clay. Very insightful. Very insightful and wonderful uh, leaders of our movement. And still I see no changes. Can a brother get a little peace? It's more on the streets and a war in the Middle East. Instead of war on poverty, they got a war on drugs so the police can bother me. Hey everybody, this is Andrea. Unfortunately, I am not on the segment with Jim and Jesse. I was on assignment. So Jim did an okay job without me. So enjoy. Okay, so we're back with Jesse Hagopian from Seattle, one of the founding members of Black Lives Matter at School. And we're only a couple weeks away from the week of action for Black Lives Matter at School. That's February 3rd through 7th. Hey, Jesse, thanks for being here on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So uh, tell me a little bit about Black Lives Matter at school. How is it different than the regular Black Lives Matter movement? Well, Black Lives Matter at school is definitely inspired by the broader Black Lives Matter movement that has demanded police accountability in this country. And I think that uh, 
that inspiration of many thousands of people marching in the streets around the country to make sure that black people who are shot down in the streets by police are not forgotten and that the movement for justice cannot just be dismissed is really uh, the important origin of the, these other offshoots that have built built up. But Black Lives Matter at school really started independently um, by educators who wanted to uproot institutional racism in their schools and bring this this movement for black lives into education. And it actually started at one elementary school, John Muir Elementary, here in Seattle, where a group of teachers planned on holding a rally in front of their school with black parents high-fiving students as they came into school at the beginning of the school year and holding a a black celebration in their school. And and the art teacher designed a T-shirt that said, Black Lives Matter, we stand together. And when the media found out that the students were going to be going to school with teachers that had Black Lives Matter shirts, um, you know, several right wing websites took that story and fed it to their base. And the school was inundated with nasty emails. And then somebody made a bomb threat against John Muir Elementary School. And it was really that which sparked this whole struggle uh you know i went and spoke to some of the teachers at john muir elementary because i was moved by their their courage and we came up with the idea of bringing a resolution forward to our union to not only endorse what john muir educators had done but to call on all the educators in seattle to wear shirts to school that said Black Lives Matter on October 19th, 2016. And we were really worried that not too many teachers would end up doing that. But after building a coalition with the Seattle PTA and the NAACP and Black student unions across Seattle and our social equity educators caucus inside the union, we were able to help inspire folks across Seattle. And we ended up having some 3,000 out of the 5,000 teachers wear the shirts to school that year. That's impressive. Yeah, it was breathtaking. I couldn't believe how successful our movement was. Teachers teaching lessons around black identity and black history that same day. And then teachers in Philadelphia saw what we had done. And they expanded our day of action to a week of action. And they really took it to the next level in Philadelphia because they broke down the 13 principles of the Black Lives Matter Global Network into teaching points for each day of the week. And really brought together uh, many of the important aspects of a broader Black Lives Matter movement into the classroom. And... Since then, we've collaborated with the educators in Philly and educators in cities across the nation to build a national Black Lives Matter at School Week for the first week of February. And we're getting ready to have our third third national week of action. So as the third national week comes up, so you're only a couple of years old here, what are we trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish with this week of action? What would be your ideal for what this week would be? So we're hoping that even more teachers take up this action. We had some teachers in some 30 cities last year participate in the week of action. Thousands of teachers reaching tens of thousands of students with anti-racist lesson plans, anti-white supremacist lesson plans, lesson plans that affirm the lives of our black students, give them a sense of pride in black history and, and African history nice. and help them understand intersectional black identities and understand the black experience as being uh, quite varied lesson plans about black Mexican identity and, and black Muslim identity 
black LGBTQIA identity and um, mm. black women's contributions to the organizing and struggle. And, you know, I was able to help put together many of the best teaching activities and lesson plans in a book I co-edited called Teaching for Black Lives, along nice. along with Wayne Now and Diane Watson. And, and we hope that that book serves as a resource this year to educators around the nation that, that are looking to push back against anti-blackness in our schools. So I know on your website, um, blacklivesmatteratschool.com, we've got four main demands that you are making of the, of the system right now. Can you break those down a little bit, explain what they mean and why those are the critical four for you? Absolutely. So Black Lives Matter at schools, uh, four demands begin with ending zero tolerance discipline and replacing it with restorative justice. And that's because we know that these harsh discipline policies are the backbone of the school to prison pipeline. And we know that more and more schools are pushing black and brown children out of the classrooms and into prison cells by implementing harsh suspension rates and expulsion rates. And in Seattle, the Department of Education federally did a study that showed that black students were suspended at four times the rate of white students in our school system for the same infractions. Right. And that's important to say that. So a white student and a black student both get called to the office for defiance and the black student is far more likely to be suspended wow. uh, for the same infraction. And that's really replicated across the country. And in right. fact, w- um, studies have shown that it's actually black girls who are most disproportionately suspended. Um, mm. Monique Morris's work is so crucial here. Her book, Push Out, revealed that black girls are suspended at some six or even seven times the rate wow. of white girls in this country. and when you're pushed out of school, you're more likely to not graduate and more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. Our second demand is mandating black history and ethnic studies. And that's because we know that the corporate curriculum in this country whitewashes America's history and denies the contributions and struggles that black people have made. And we know that all students deserve the right to be seen in their curriculum and learn about their own culture. For black students, usually the curriculum reduces black history to slavery. Right. And and even in the discussion of slavery, hides the great crimes that were perpetrated. And so we know that actually ethnic studies and black studies programs have been shown in study after study to dramatically increase graduation rates. Um, There's a great study from San Francisco that was recently released that showed black students graduating at much higher rates, getting higher grade point averages, getting into college at higher rates who had participated in ethnic studies courses. Our third demand is hire more black teachers. That's because We've lost some 26,000 black teachers since 2002 across America. They've been pushed out of classrooms in city after city. And, you know, it's, it's to the detriment of all of our students, but especially our black and brown students. Right. And we, we've seen the studies that show that black students who have even one black teacher in their K-12 career uh, dramatically increased their graduation rates. I think one study showed some 30 percent higher for students who had one one black teacher. We know that there's also studies that show that that white students enjoy and do better in school when they have black teachers. And so we want to stop the push out of black teachers from our our education system as well. And then last year, we added a fourth demand to the week of action, which was fund counselors, not cops. And that's because 1.6 million children in this country go to a school where there's a police officer, but not a counselor. Right. And 
that's an obscenity that is contributing to the school to prison pipeline. Right. If you add together um, schools that are missing a school psychologist, librarian, a counselor, and a nurse, but but have a police officer, we're talking about 14 million children right. that are in a school missing one of those vital services, but somehow finds the money to fund the uh, office. an officer to, right. to punish children rather than to nurture and support them. Our four demands really animate this movement and I think are, are all about transforming the public education system uh, to dismantle the institutional racism that has been part of our system from the beginning. Yeah, it's, you know, it's crazy in Chicago. We just finished a teacher strike, as you probably know, and one of the big uh, focal points of that was that we don't have counselors in the schools. And, you know, it took several weeks of fighting. But then the mayor, of course, said that was the right thing to do. It took a strike to get the right thing to do, but that's OK. I was so inspired by that. And, and Black Lives Matter at school wrote a solidarity statement yes. with the strike because we know striking educators fighting around anti-racist demands is one of the best ways to win our, our demands. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting educating the public about this because so many people I talked to, they were surprised. They're like, well, how do they have money for cops in the school, but not for a psychologist or a social worker? I'm like, I don't know. You should ask the mayor. And, um, you know, and this is the same kind of problem we have here in Chicago with the, uh, the loss of uh, black and brown teachers. Um, the population of African-American teachers in the city has dropped by almost 50% in the last 15 years. It's, it's crazy. And, you know, as the population of black and brown students is increasing, and like you said, there's, there's innumerable studies about how students are more successful of all races when you have a diverse teaching crew. So at, at the last House of Delegates meeting for CTU, we passed a resolution supporting the Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action. And we're trying to push that out through all of Chicago public schools. Maybe you can speak for a minute about how that is playing out around the country and other unions and other locals in different areas. Absolutely. The union support for Black Lives Matter at school is critical. In fact, we were able to get the National Education Association's endorsement for Black Lives Matter at school. Nice. And, the, and support the week of action, which was a real breakthrough. And they supported the week by helping us catalog places that, that teachers were taking up this action. And they also helped provide um, lesson plans and teaching activities. That's been really important to helping get yeah. the word out about this, this action. And we look forward to their support again this year. Uh, unfortunately, the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, has not endorsed Black Lives Matter at school. And that continues mm -hmm. to be a struggle. And in fact, um, the educators union in New York City actually voted against supporting Black Lives oh, Matter wow. at school in the first year's week of action. And so there still remains work to be done okay. for our unions to fully embrace this this effort. And I think that that will be a struggle that, that continues. But I'm proud to say my local, the Seattle Education Association, has played a really important role in backing this week of action and supporting it in schools across our city. Well, I'm sure as more cities come on board with this, you had mentioned, you know, Seattle, Chicago now, Philadelphia, you had mentioned earlier as more and more of these larger districts come on, I'm sure the national unions will have to kind of follow suit as well. That's my hope. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so one of the questions I've got for you, I looked on your website and I saw the curriculum and it, it's very interesting and very well thought out. Um, I was just wondering how this works in the classroom and maybe you could give me an example of how, how you run it in your classroom because you're a classroom teacher and how does this run for you out in, in Seattle? Absolutely. So you know, we break down the 13 principles of the Black Lives Matter Global Network into teaching points for each day of the week. That means that on Monday, we teach lessons about loving engagement, empathy, and restorative justice. Mm -hmm. So I might hold a peace circle in my classroom that day and, and talk about how understanding other people's perspectives 
can help us build a stronger community and the ways in which black people have engaged in struggles for restorative justice to replace um, this punitive uh, prison industrial complex Mm -hmm. in our country. And so that um, has been an important role in, in kicking off the week in my classroom and in classrooms all across the country. On Tuesday, the themes are diversity and globalism. Those are uh, themes that help us get into discussions with students about the African diaspora and the many contributions of African people all over the world to our society. Uh, You know, on that day, I often teach about Haiti, the the Haitian revolution that Mm -hmm. is an inspiration to black people and and freedom fighters everywhere because it's the only example in world history where enslaved people were able to gain their freedom through struggle and then start their own nation. Right. And, you know, I also will teach about uh, the struggle for Haitian freedom today against uh, U.S. imperialism. Mm -hmm. And then on Wednesday, our themes are trans affirming, queer affirming and collective value. That's an important day to have students expand their understanding of the black experience and and understand that there have been many LGBTQIA uh, black people that have made important contributions to the struggles for social justice and to U.S. history. You can't teach about the civil rights movement without talking about the March on Washington. And you can't talk about the March on Washington if you don't teach about Bayard Rustin, a gay man, a gay black man whose sexuality is often either erased from the story or or he is completely. And, you know, we want to put him back in the, the center of that story with his full identity. Right. We want to talk about Marsha P. Johnson, a transgender black uh, woman who was one of the most important people in launching the Stonewall Rebellion. And we want to talk about Lorraine Hansberry and her incredible writing that transformed uh, American culture and not erase her lesbian uh, sexuality. Right. Right. And so um, that's a really important a day for us. So Thursday, our themes are intergenerational black families and black villages. And we Mm -hmm. want students to understand that the nuclear family is not the only way that uh, families have been set up. And in fact, black families have been disrupted by uh, enslavement, by the terror that occurred during Jim Crow segregation, Mm -hmm. and today by mass incarceration. And that there have been new structures that have been created to help support black families and, and black children that, that aren't always that traditional family structure. Right. And we want to also celebrate connections between black people across age ranges and, and, and learn from elders, our youth as well. It's about black women and with the theme unapologetically black and That's because black women have always played such a vital role in both the theoretical understanding of how we get free and also in the hard labor to organize the social struggles. And yet they often are invisibilized uh, in the in history's telling of the black struggle. And in fact, in moments like the March on Washington, not a single woman was allowed to speak on that stage, not even Rosa Parks. Right. So we want our students to understand that, but also to learn about uh, the black women who have contributed so much to the struggle. And so in my classroom on on Friday, uh, each student gets a character of a different black freedom fighter woman. So they they might get uh, Sojourner Truth or Ida B. Wells or Ella Baker or Fannie Lou Hamer or one of the founding members of Black Lives Matter uh, Global Network today, Um, the three women who launched the hashtag. um, And and they go around the room and meet each other, right? And actually they have to find find 
um, answers to different questions on their scavenger hunt sheet. Okay. Find a woman who was arrested in her struggle against racism. Find a woman who wrote an influential book that helped people uh, organize against racism. So by the end, they've met so many different black women who are part of this this movement. Yes. And, and so the week of action just helps our students understand the many contributions uh, to our society that, that black people have created. That's really great. I mean, the curriculum on the website, when you look at it, it's adaptable to different levels. It's not a one size fits all kind of curriculum. So if people are concerned about that, it's, it's not like the crazy can curriculums you get from the district. This is actually well thought out and you can tell teachers designed it. So that's, that's actually really Absolutely. great. And if people go to black lives matter at school.com, there's a button to press for lesson plans. And there are banks and banks of lesson plans from many different cities. There's the yeah. national, uh, lesson plan bank that Black Lives Matter at School has created. There's a link to my book, uh, Teaching for Black Lives. And there's so many different lessons that relate to all of those themes. No, it's, it's really great. I've pressed the button myself and taken a look at some of the lesson plans. They're really, like I said, they're very well thought out. Um, but the last question I want to ask you here is, what if I'm a teacher that's not at a predominantly African-American school? We have a lot of uh, schools here in Chicago and I'm sure around the country that are 90%, 95% one ethnicity or another. So if my school is um, all Latino, all white, all whatever, why, why is this curriculum a good thing for me to run if it's not a predominantly African-American school? Well, absolutely. Because our school system is so segregated in the United States, there are many schools that do not have black students uh, in them at all. And I would say it's also uh, and maybe even especially important that mm -hmm. those schools teach about black lives because we know that our system has uh, discarded black lives and uh, tries to sow fear in many communities about uh, black people as a way to divide and conquer. And these lessons are critical for students to overcoming those divisions and joining in a common struggle uh, right. for uh, a society free uh, of racism. And, you know, we have a lesson that we often kick the the week of action off with that asks students, why are we using this phrase black lives matter? Right. right. You've also heard this, this phrase, all lives all matter. Lives matter why, right? why don't, why don't we, we use that phrase. And we start by showing pictures of hurricane Harvey that, that struck in Texas right. and then pictures of the hurricane that, that hit uh, Puerto Rico. And we say when that hurricane hit in Houston, uh, how absurd would it be to say, well, why are you talking about Houston? Because all cities matter. Why are you talking about Puerto Rico? Right. Because, right, uh, all places matter. And in fact, yes, that's true. All cities matter. But when a certain city has been struck by a horrific natural disaster, we need to pay specific attention to that. Black people in this country have been struck by a disaster. It's not a natural disaster. It's a disaster Man of institutional racism. Yeah. And we need to pay special attention to that um, wherever, wherever you are. That's a great analogy for it. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on CTU Speaks all the way from Seattle on our Skype line here at CTU headquarters. Um, let's not forget to go to blacklivesmatteratschool.com and download all the resources that are available for the week of action, February 3rd through 7th, coming up in just a couple weeks for us here in Chicago. That'll be our first week back of the new semester. So this will be a really good time to start a new curriculum for anybody who's trying to think of what to do the first week back. So we'll have a lot of this stuff posted up on our website, links, ideas, uh, maybe some stuff from other teachers about how they've implemented it in their classroom. You can go to our website that's going to have this on it, particularly at c2local1.org slash blm at school. That's B-L-M-A-T school. 
and you'll get all the curriculum there and any kind of questions or whatever, we'll have a place for you to post them up there as well. So we can share your information. I really appreciate you having me on the show and I hope you have a great day. You too, man. Good luck on the whole week action. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. Thank you guys for listening again thank you for the new listeners and to those who are faithful listeners to episode 13 please again if you have not subscribed do so and tell your friends to do the same even your enemies and please share on social media on upcoming episodes coming up we're going to have jackson and gervais back to talk about some of the solutions to the the issues that were raised on today's episode we're also going to have stephanie farmer coming she's a professor from roosevelt university who's going to be talking about student-based budgeting and how that's a real big problem in this whole situation of closing schools because student-based budgeting is the formula of how cps funds our school system and it really hurts veteran teachers it hurts students and we're going to try to figure out what can be done about this and what's already uh, been happening and definitely uh, make sure that you contact us at CTU Speaks at ctulocal1.org if you got something you want to hear on our episodes. And don't forget our phone number, 312-467-8888. It's a lot of eights. It is. So make sure you dial that and call us up. And if you're one of the two or three people that haven't signed up yet for our podcast, make sure you do it. <laughs> <laughs>